0: Welcome to the Battleground, Wisconsin. My name is Matt Brusky, and I'm the Deputy Director here at Citizen Action of Wisconsin. And welcome to another week, beautiful fall week from the great state of Wisconsin. And we have our full panel with us, which means Claire Zalke, the Healthcare Director here at Citizen Action is with us. Claire, great to have you.
1: Thank you, great to be here.
0: Absolutely. And Robert Craig, Executive Director at Citizen Action. Robert, how you doing?
2: Very well, all things considered. So good day, everyone.
0: Ah, all things considered. That is that is for sure. And uh, we will be considering a number of the things that may be rolling around in Robert's head right now. Um, folks, we are going to update on Build Back Better. and We record Thursday mornings. And as of this morning, there could be a potential vote in the House. We'll talk more about that to get the show started. But we are going to also see if there are any lessons learned from the uh, elections this week, particularly from Virginia, but there were also some local elections, including the um, very high profile uh, Mequon School Board that I uh, want to get uh, the panel's thoughts on. In addition, lots of things happening in the state. We will tried to discuss the absolute hatchet job Republicans are doing right now in uh, the assist to the big lie in terms of going after the election commission. We'll talk more about this and others. We we uh, will end the show. We're going to be joined by the Wisconsin State AFL-CIO President Stephanie Bloomingdale to continue our discussion we've been having uh, lately about just labor striking back and the upsurgence of the labor movement, and in particular, both organizing and labor actions. But hey, let's get started. Claire, I'm going to go to you first. Um, Since we last talked, uh, Build Back Better kind of hit a pause, but that seems to have sped up this week. There's been a number of deals on some changes to some of the policy. We won't get into all of it, but wanted to certainly get your thoughts overall on, uh, as we sit Thursday morning recording, that there could be a House vote Um, where you see us at. And if you have any particular comments on some of the changes around prescription drugs, that would be interesting. Claire?
1: Thanks, Matt. Um, yes, so you may have uh, heard me sound a bit despondent last week <laughs> about the state of Build Back Better. And uh, we've made significant progress this week. And uh, I, I attribute this based on uh, sort of what I'm hearing from our national partners that are involved in these discussions in DC, is that the framework that the president released before heading off to the uh, climate change summit was pretty much a list of all the things that that everyone was confident that there was agreement on. And so the things that still needed to be hashed out, like for example, paid leave and prescription drugs that we talked about a lot last week, were the things that there was still um, some consternation around. So Um, The negotiations have continued this past week, as I'm sure our listeners have heard. And it's really exciting. Um, Of course, getting prescription drug negotiations back into the bill is a big deal. Um, It's not everything that we wanted. But I think the most important thing is that, that there is a mechanism for requiring Medicare to negotiate some Uh, lower drug prices, even if it's for uh, just a really small segment of drugs. Um, So, for example, some of the most expensive drugs like cancer treatment drugs are included um, and an enforcement mechanism um, to help hold pharmaceutical companies accountable. Um, These were the most important things, I think, to have included in the bill um, because once you get the mechanisms set up, it's easier in future years to keep adding more and more and more drugs. So uh, I'm actually feeling much more optimistic this week than I was last week um, about this being a um, small but still significant structural reform um, that'll be included in the package um there's Claire, also been some very positive quick, statements yeah
0: quick clarification yeah <laughs> is <laughs> cinema supportive of, is it can we can we assume that cinema is supportive of this deal that you are speaking of and uh just so our listeners know for sure because we've talked extensively about her
1: Matthew Bresky that is literally the sentence that was going to come out of my mouth when you interrupted me. Yes. I was going to say the most exciting thing about all of this is that this has Kirsten Cinema's sign off. She has said that she will support this. Now, the other senator that people have heard a lot about is Joe Manchin is holding things up. But Joe Manchin was never holding things up on prescription drug reforms. He's actually in a decent spot on this. So it was really just Cinema And um, oh, my gosh. And what's his face from New Jersey is going to um, Menendez. Anyways, there's another senator from New Jersey, I think Menendez, who Robert gave me a thumbs up. Great. Thank you, Robert, who um, has also quietly been causing trouble on this issue in the background, but not getting a lot of attention for it. So we can't let him we, we can't let him uh, <laughs> off the hook here. Um, but Kirsten Cinema is the most vocal opponent uh, is on board with this plan. And that's super, super exciting. I, I think bodes really well that it'll stay in the final package that gets a vote. And that could well, happen uh, as soon as today, Thursday, that we're taping or by Saturday. That's excellent.
0: House. Robert, your thoughts?
2: It's very important to take stock here as to what's going on. I'm just going to point to some big things going on. Yes, the process is disappointing because much more is needed. But it's not, this is not small reform. It's still the biggest structural reform since the 1960s. So you have to ask yourself, if you wanted 16 weeks paid leave and you wanted affordable childcare and universal pre-K, and I'll put another thing on the negative, we're losing free community college, would you, because you didn't get the two other things, paid family leave and community college, give up on how transformational it will be to have the child tax credit, I missed that, to reduce poverty by 45%, the biggest climate investment in American history, Again, it was weakened, but it's still half over half a trillion dollars, and, it, and we are in a ticking time bomb here in 2030 if we don't act, start acting now. And then, universal pre-K and affordable childcare has a huge emancipatory impact for working people and for children especially, and all working families. And so, it is worth this deal is worth having despite our disappointment. And we on the left need to get a Better understanding of what is a good compromise. A good compromise is when you get as much as you can out of the process, not when you get everything you wanted, okay? But sometimes you have to push for more to get the good compromise. So I think the $3.5 trillion was critical for that. That's number one. Number two, you're seeing a durable alliance between progressives in Congress and a moderate president. You have not seen that since the 1960s. It is very unusual Biden has been, and the progressives have been lockstep, led by the Congressional Progressive Caucus and Pramila Jayapal, and it's been a small faction of the moderate Democrats, because the reporters are doing a terrible job saying it's moderates or progressives. Almost all moderates are with progressives and with the president, okay? It's two who represent the biggest corporate interests and billionaires in our country. They are not making independent, deliberative decisions, another thing the media gives you a, a false impression on. And so we have this moment where, frankly, I've I, said this repeatedly, where power is is an inside-outside strategy. Outside progressives, activists, movement groups working with people on the inside, elected progressives to get things done. For me, as long as Pramila Jayapal, the Congress Progressive Caucus, which is legit, is saying that, that this is a good deal and is on board, we should all support it. And us undercutting it, it's undercutting them. And everything they've done, because there's no pathway to victory over them like their sellouts at this point. Okay. And if you want to say AOC and uh, Pramila Jayapal and the rest are sellouts, then go for it. But then you are in a marginal portion of the left. So that is, and it has a huge impact on racial equity and gender equity, gender equity especially, but also racial equity, all of this. And I didn't even mention the home care investment and making those jobs living wage jobs for the first time. So. This is huge, it could happen today. Um, What's gonna happen here that's also, this is the last thing that is transformational. Progressives, by allowing this vote, are going to trust the president because Manchin and Cinema are still playing games and dithering and that this is a strategy they have to get things for the special interests they represent. And of course they're not gonna agree now because they lose all leverage then, okay? But President Biden has promised he'll get this through if they pass it. And they're going to trust his word. It's a leap of faith, Pramila Jayapal said. And that is what's going on here, which shows, again, what I started with, the durable alliance between a centrist president and the most progressive House caucus, a group of organized progressives in over half a century.
0: Yeah, look, I think, and we talked about this actually on our staff call this week, because right, there's a lot of certainly disagreement amongst progressives and frustration over over process. But I actually see what the Progressive Caucus and what they're doing is uh, kind of calling mansion bluff in particular, and obviously cinema, because th- this is like that Peanuts where the, the football keeps get, getting pulled out or, you know, the other uh, metaphors, the goal posts that keep moving. In this case, we're not, it's like the goal posts have never really appeared and it's not really fully clear. And there's always a new change and This week, the saying, we're trusting Biden, it's kind of like, it's putting it on them. And this is either going to sink or swim, especially after the elections this week. And we're going to talk more about that, uh, the elections in Virginia after this break. But this is a real moment for Democrats in Congress and for those two in particular uh, as to what they really want. And I think this calls them out. And I think it puts a lot of pressure on them. It also puts some pressure on the president to deliver. Uh, in theory, uh, this he's a more of a moderate and ought to uh, have some ability to persuade them. We're going to find out. We'll know more next week. But, folks, we got to take a break. And on the back end of this break, we're going to continue to talk about how all this is playing out, but talk a little bit about the elections in, uh, in Virginia this week in particular, but also hear some local elections. You're listening to The Battleground Wisconsin for Citizen Action. Welcome back to the Battleground, Wisconsin. We are going to talk about the elections that occurred this week. Um, I'll just start by prefacing, I believe there's always way, way too much made of this election cycle uh, <laughs> and and these elections uh, and what they mean to the national situation. Um, but one thing's clear, right? you don't see the kind of massive swings that you're seeing in Virginia if um there isn't some 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 lack of popularity and what I'm of course addressing is the governor's race in Virginia this week where Republican won and uh, uh and I wanted to get both of your thoughts as to whether you know whether you see that there's a major implication here uh, and what you see as the lessons learned, particularly of uh, what happened on Tuesday night. Claire, I'm gonna go to you first for your thoughts.
1: Thanks. Uh, so I'm gonna preface this by saying that um, I've come a long way in my thinking on this. Uh, the On Tuesday night, I was definitely having flashbacks to uh, being on Russ Feinkel's campaign in 2010 and feeling uh, really sad and having this sort of sense of impending doom. Um, but then I had to pause and say, Claire, no, stop it. You cannot um, extrapolate too much about what will happen in Wisconsin based on what happened in Virginia. And so, uh, and I think there's a lot of reasons for that and we're gonna talk about them. So my, the first thing I wanna say to folks is, you know, don't freak out too hard. Um, this this is one race, it should be, um, you know, it should be reminded to us that we absolutely cannot be complacent and we should not assume that just because um, somebody is a Democratic incumbent or has won that seat before that they will again and that we we don't have to work hard because we absolutely do. Um, but it is it is not by any means, um, you know, preordained that what happened in Virginia is going to happen in other parts of the country like Wisconsin. Right. So, number one. Um the other, thing, the second thing I'll say is that, um, I think this shows that, uh, organizing is really important there. I, you know, and I have friends who were really involved in Terry McCullough's race in, uh, Virginia. And so uh, this is not to say that the staff aren't great or didn't do, um, good work but I think it shows that our work to to build progressive power within a state is important to be doing continuously and not just during the electoral season right so that's why the work of citizen action and organizations like us are are so um, important um, so those are the first two things I wanted to say um, and then uh, maybe for an analysis of how the race turned out I will I will toss it to Robert um, who I'm sure will have interesting things to say yeah.
0: Yeah, I definitely want to hear from Robert, and but as I pitch it to Robert, I, I want to point one thing and at least point Robert in one possible direction. Claire, you mentioned Terry McCulloch, right? Uh, I, I'll just submit, I think he's part of the problem, right? We've been talking about corporate Democrats. When you have a guy like Terry McCulloch running, that is not helpful, um, but I also don't believe it explains everything. Robert, your thoughts?
2: And I, we talk a lot on Vallejo, Wisconsin about how the Washington pundit class Uh, Puts its thumb on the scale and influences the way the public perceives things by interpreting it for them. They have somehow twisted a retread corporate Democrat losing and not running on anything into some sort of rebuke of progressives and a reason we shouldn't do a bold Build Back Better agenda. I can't follow the mental gymnastics, and there aren't any. They're just asserting it because that's what they believe. Uh, And so it's all progressives' fault that we have an impasse. Not the biggest interests, billionaires and corporations in the country through their agents, mansion, and cinema, holding things up in order to get whatever sleazy insider deals they're trying to get, in they're different interests, so they have different ones in return for this moving piece of legislation, because there isn't a lot of moving piece of legislation. So this would seem to suggest to me, and I have an email out this morning about this, that this means we need bold progressive candidates that will run on things uh, that will actually improve people's lives and answer their concerns because McAuliffe ran on nothing other than the other guy's Trump. He's Trumpy, I swear. And he didn't seem like Trump, even though he probably is and probably Trump believes and he might be right that this guy will help him rig the 2024 election. But he didn't run that way or appear that way to voters. He seemed like uh, some sort of Mr. Rogers kind of Republican insurance agent. So that's one. Robert, And
0: real quick, you mentioned uh, McAuliffe. The other, the other issue, and we'll get to this, and as a tie to Wisconsin, is he did not handle how he discussed education very well. And there were people on his own campaign that talked about that. Uh, it's one thing to support public s- schools and to support educators. It's another to tell parents that they don't have any say. Uh, I will get Claire's comments on this later, too, as a former school board member. Terry did themselves no favors, and it's lessons learned as to w- w- here We'll talk more about in the Mequon School Board about how to actually go about this. Robert, continue your thoughts.
2: All candidates are going to make mistakes, I do want to bear in mind. And the question is how big it is, how much the other side exploit it, how good is your response? He made a big mistake in how he characterized the education debate, made it sound like parents should have no role in their kids' education. That is a horrible position. He didn't even walk it back very well. let alone. And of course, he shouldn't have made it, but people are going to make misstatements. You'll notice that Republicans make misstatements all the time, and our side doesn't take advantage fully. Republicans are very good at that. And it fit into their frame perfectly. We often go and try to take advantage of mistakes that are not within our overall message and frame, and therefore aren't helpful. But because we think it's a scandal, when of course it doesn't work half the time, at least half the time. Second thing is, um, there is a cyclical piece of this. Uh, Georgia and Florida and New Jersey, the states that have their governors' races in odd years often go against whoever won the presidency. So there is, and there's a natural uh, countercyclical effect that gives the Republicans wind at their sails for 2022, but it's not inevitable. It doesn't happen all the time, but it happens. And you add gerrymandering, they're trying to add to their advantage independent of their position on voters. Third, I think people need to understand the, the, the media, some of the media understand this. There's a political scientist, uh, science theory back to the 1950s, that the public's reaction in elections is more mood. It's more what they called thermostatic as a metaphor. So things aren't going that well. The the pandemic hasn't gone away. People are still worried, right? Now that's not Joe Biden's fault, but they just say pox in all your houses. I think all the coverage of Democrats in disarray and not passing something, which is not objective journalism, that is spin from allegedly objective journalists, influenced them as well. So they figure like in Afghanistan, the withdrawal and its perceived incompetence was not good. But I think the only the best thing you can do, and this is what people like Pramila Jayapal and Joe Biden and Ron Wyden, the powerful chair of the Senate Finance Committee, are saying is is that this means we need to pass Build Back Better. We need to turbocharge our agenda. That's the quote said of Ryden. And that is right because our only chance here in 2022 is to deliver things that then we make matter to people. In other words, we also have a problem that the child tax credit's been too invisible to people. So they know they're being benefited. They don't give Democrats the credit because we're not, we didn't send it out with a big Trump signature like Trump does, right? But it just kind of came to them, a lot of them, fairly automatically. Uh, A lot of other folks who weren't signed up yet, they have a deadline in two weeks, which is critical. Uh, Those are the people who, who did no taxes and are the most... Uh, marginalized in people, families in need, uh, a number of them. So anyway, so so we need to change the thermostat. In fact, I would be bolder on COVID-19. And I think this is a message to Tony Evers, whose approval rings have gone down, that he has not used all the leverage he could have to check the pandemic. And that is affecting his approval rings. It's affecting the public's view of how things are going. Okay, so signing the budget and calling it bipartisan doesn't seem to have overcome that effect He's down, not as far as Ron Johnson, but he's down as well. So what can we do other than actually make this administration succeed? And you know what well, the biggest ballast I'll just end with is the filibuster. We would have raised the minimum wage with a filibuster. We would have had labor law reform, you know, fifteen dollar minimum wage, all sorts of things that aren't happening. Is that Senate rule really worth that to protect corporate America? That's so, what it does.
0: Robert, I love this thermostatic effect because been preaching it in terms of what 2022 is going to be all about uh, is folks who are either in the legislature, or running for Congress, that actually think they're going to be running some independent campaign that isn't going to be wound up in the thermostat is important. And you mentioned Build Back Better. Now you also mentioned this idea that we need to be talking smartly about things that are actually being discussed. And so when McCulloch bumbles badly And education is their top thing that they are jamming us on. And it's a national strategy. Claire, I'm coming to you to go after schools and this school board strategy to rile up their base, right? And and to get them fired up. And we saw this, I would clearly overplayed here in Milwaukee. And it's instructive in these Milwaukee suburbs, suburbs that are changing, becoming more democratic. Uh, there was a national strategy, right, to recall. I believe it was four school board members and uh, Rebecca Clayfish famously funded, deeply involved, but a lot of national folks and major Republican funders behind this strategy. And we certainly saw it play out in the Virginia race we're discussing. Claire, I want to get your thoughts on this strategy, um, lessons learned from the MECON recall, what we're seeing, but also any thoughts that you have about as a former school board member about like really how Democrats ought to be going forward and pushing on this. Robert certainly had one suggestion on health care. We need to be continue to be strong on our COVID policies. Your thoughts on the education component, because it's going to be a central part of the strategy for the Republicans.
1: Well, maybe we should do that after the break.
0: Oh, I'm seeing there's 30 seconds left in the show. I apologize. Yeah, of course, we'll do that right after the break. Thank you, Claire. Folks, you're listening to the Battleground, Wisconsin. Welcome back to the Battleground Wisconsin. Before we left, I uh, dropped the ball and gave Claire uh, no time. Claire, your response on, on any lessons as it relates to the elections yesterday, particularly around the issue of schools and education.
1: So, the first thing I'll say is that I actually think that the failed school board recall attempts in the Mequon Thienesville School District that garnered national attention are a much better indicator of uh, things that could go well in Wisconsin than the Virginia race is an indicator of what could go badly. Um, because this is a, or this was a campaign that Rebecca Cleafish really. Um, put her face on, right? Like she, she almost made this a um, sort of initial referendum on her on her campaign for governor, right? I mean, she was encouraging people to vote. She was out on doors, recruiting volunteers, uh, really trying to own that race, and it failed pretty spectacularly. So that is um, the first thing that I think is important to say, and it's really something that helped. Um, helped me refocus on what's uh, on Wisconsin when I was feeling nervous about what happened in Virginia. So I hope I hope that other folks will hold on to to that as well. Um, but more broadly, uh, like Matt referenced, this effort to uh, recall challenge uh, school board members is not. Just about Wisconsin. This is a trend that's happening uh, nationally. This is a coordinated effort of um, folks who are basically being Trump supporters and in that in that camp. Um, Vox the the news the online news article uh, outlet Vox has a podcast called Today Explained and just this week i think on Tuesday they did a really great episode talking about this national trend so if you want to dig in more to this i highly recommend uh, Today Explained by Vox's episode called School Board Brawl so i would i would say that there i've said this before on the podcast that being a school board member is maybe the most thankless Uh, elected position because the people who tend to pay attention are pretty much either just parents or just people who work for the school district. And so um, you work almost exclusively with a population of stakeholders who um, feel uh, like really, really passionately about whatever um, they're, they're arguing for or against. Um, you're, you're very rarely working with people who um, are only mildly invested. Um, and so uh, it's no surprise to me that um, these recall efforts got really, really heated. Um, but of course, you uh, that's all because it was being stoked by um, this sort of national political movement to um, mobilize people. And it's what makes it easy for people to be, to be mobilized, right? Because they feel really passionately about their kids and about their kids' education. So it's, it's an easy in for people who want to insert um, ideological, I shouldn't say partisans, why I'm saying ideological uh, sort of acrimony um, into a community.
0: Robert, your uh, final thoughts on uh, the elections?
2: We need to understand this school board strategy is a strategy about national politics. It's not just about school boards, though we heard that for a lot of what Claire said or a good kind of her experience in school. Remember, it was from that perspective, and and that's important too. Um, that and, this, and the right has a long history of this. They use school boards to start kind of the new right revolution in the late 70s and 80s and took out tons of moderate progressive school board members with stealth campaigns. Uh, Lee Atwater led, led some of that work and, and, and others, uh, people who built the modern right. Uh, so you have that, uh, um, and a number of others. So they have decided based on the Virginia race that making it about schools and parent choice, remember in COVID-19, they've tried to make it about their infantile view of freedom, that freedom is whatever you want to do, regardless of how it affects other people or kills them in a pandemic. uh, They're trying to make parents feel like there's some sort of attack on their children's beliefs and attitudes and that their white kids are being taught, which fits perfectly into Fox News frame, uh, to hate themselves, which is silly and ridiculous, though there are some mainline voices giving some credence to it, without much proof that I don't want, like this word very much, but allegedly woke racial theory is being jammed down the throats of our students. Uh, and so they, and they think this worked in the Virginia governor's race, and they're going to double down on it. And so Democrats under the, the, the retread Democrats, the corporate Democrats, Terry McAuliffe wing did not figure out a very good response. And it's not only responding to it, because that's in their frame, it's also pivoting to something else that trumps it. Uh, No pun intended there. And so sometimes the way to answer something is to blunt an attack and then move on to an effective attack on your ground. But we also don't often do that very well. So we need to be aware that they keep driving this right wing view of freedom, which is and they're also this fits in perfectly with things like replacement theory being proposed by the most popular Fox host, Tucker Carlson. And so that, that this creates this sense of fear that there are these wild eyed, radical liberals and black and brown people indoctrinating their kids. And it doesn't require evidence any more than the big lie about stealing the election requires real evidence. And it's easy to get people stoked up on fear, and that's what's going on here. But they just showed it could work in a a governor's race. So this is very dangerous, and we need to figure out how to blunt it and then how to move on to our ground. I think likely we don't want to just stick on the ground because once you're in that frame, you're discussing about whether – parents are being undermined or not? Which one is it? Just having that discussion makes it seem like they and their parental control and choice are being undermined.
0: Folks, with that, we are going to quickly change topics. We have to talk about uh, what's going on here in the state where um, legislative Republicans, Republicans uh, throughout the state are continuing their push on the big lie and this week it manifested itself in calls for Wisconsin elections administrator, Megan Wolf, uh, to resign. Uh, she very effectively pushed back on them, but this all stems from the latest fake uh, story, which has the um, Racine County sheriff uh, making all kinds of accusations around um, nursing homes. Folks know the details, but um uh, Did result uh, yesterday in him attempting to try and get uh, charges filed against five of the election commissioners, including the Republicans, uh, and one of the Republicans, Voss, uh, supported. I want to get your thoughts, folks, Uh, just give you a chance to comment on this uh, continued uh, just unbelievable effort that uh, does not portend well uh, for the future of where we're headed here with governance. Claire?
1: Yeah, I suppose it was inevitable that after coming for local election clerks and failing so badly and being able to damage their reputation um, or or bowl them over in some way, uh, that they would come for the Wisconsin Election Commission leaders as well. Um, so I, I, you know, commend these Nonpartisan election officials for uh, standing up for themselves and the integrity of their investigate, or excuse me, of their investigation, oh my gosh, the integrity of their election administration. Uh, And it is, as I've always said, um, a little bit mind boggling to me, although I understand the politics, um, the nefarious politics behind it, um, that we're we're still asking this question a year later. It is just a a huge waste of public funds and a huge distraction from what we should be focusing on in moving our state forward.
2: Robert? Matt, you described uh, Megan Wolf's response as an effective response. Effective for us, I don't think it's effective for who they're trying to mobilize. And just as many effective responses to Joe McCarthy during the communist witch hunts in the 50s didn't lead anywhere because it didn't matter if you had an effective rational response. They have that this is not based on reason. This is all a big lie. And once they tell their base that it's been stolen, that this woman helped steal it, and that some horrible nefarious thing went on because we made it possible for nursing home residents to vote in a pandemic, including the Republican members of the Election Commission, it was unanimous. She was directed by them. She's just staff. But as I said, none of this matters. They're discrediting the election so they can always win elections that can rig uh, the apparatus. And this is what's being demanded by their president in waiting, Donald Trump. And it's not just those institutions. Not passing Build Back Better, having the big corporate interests use Manchin to instead hold things up, discredits government, discredits our institutions. The judge in the uh, trial of Kyle Rittenhouse in Kenosha saying you can't call the victims victims, you should call them rioters and things like that, and looters, that discredits the elements of government. It's being done by the right, but it advances, advantages the right. We need to understand that since they want to limit and annihilate democracy so they can rule and corporations can rule, it helps them even when they're doing it. Back in the, the early aughts when Bush totally mishandled the Katrina bailout. That actually discredited all government, not just conservative government. And so we have a real issue here that we need to win, and then we need to make government work while it's being sabotaged by the other side. And this is an example of that because their base will now believe this because they stated it, and they will not believe anything Megan Wolfe or, or we say about it.
0: In addition, this week, folks, before we had to break uh, related to what Robert and Claire were just talking about. Governor Evers did announce uh, that he is going to veto uh, the Republican maps that we discussed last week that were introduced. Um, he did also, and there was a big introduction, splashy introduction uh, this week of the People's Commission maps uh, as a way to you know, sort of show an alternative vision for what the maps could be. But folks, we're going to have to take a break. When we come back, We're going to be joined by the president of the Wisconsin State AFL-CIO, Stephanie Bloomingdale. We're going to talk about the upsurgence in uh, labor organizing and actions around the country. Uh, And certainly a number of folks got to calling it uh, last month's Striketober. You're listening to the Battleground Wisconsin. We're Citizen Action. Welcome back to the Battleground, Wisconsin. Again, we're Citizen Action. You can find us at citizenactionwi.org. We are super thrilled to have Stephanie Bloomingdale, the president of the Wisconsin State AFL-CIO with us. Stephanie, good to have you.
3: Great to be here.
0: So, Stephanie, I asked you to come on because we have been talking a lot uh, over the last month about what's been happening uh, with the labor movement and in particular workers, not only organizing uh, we, we've talked about the Colectivo organizing, other organizing going on, but just uh, last month it was dubbed Strike Toberfest by a lot of folks because there was so much labor action going on and l- labor and workers standing up in the workplace and really pushing for their rights and, and actually really leveraging what appears to be a lot of power. So just thanks for joining us and want to get your thoughts on why you think all this is happening and what it amazing opportunity this is. Stephanie.
3: Uh, Well, thank you, Matt. Uh, It really is great to be here uh, with you on this podcast for Citizen Action. And uh, yes, I do believe that this is an incredible moment for working people in the United States. We are seeing uh, really unprecedented levels of activism uh, that is taking the form in uh, sometimes in actual strikes in uh, other times in new organizing. And at the same time, we have a general state of you know workers saying, you know what enough is enough. We've been taken down the chin for decade after decade after decade of our wages being depressed, of our health care being crap, and our, the prices uh, that we pay for everything. Just uh, for products in order to live, keep going up. And so, you know, I do want to mention that whole, you know, going back historically, you know, in the 1970s, we had productivity that largely tracked um, wages. But after that, uh, productivity took off in a big way and uh, wages did not keep up. So, what that meant is that the companies were keeping more and more of the profits and not sharing with uh, the the working people that created those profits. So I I do think this is an incredible time for for us as working people and to use that solidarity that comes with uh, coming together in in a union and and building a strong union is our way to really make a change in how the deck is stacked for workers uh, in these coming years.
2: Robert? People don't realize that strikes were a major part of American life in the, throughout the late 19th century when heavy industry first built up and up to all the period where labor didn't have full organizing rights and that it set up the New Deal and the Wagner Act and the National Labor Relations Act and board. Um, and it continued uh, once we had a very strong labor movement uh, throughout the 50s, 60s and 70s. And after the rigging of our economy against unions, I mean, the original voter suppression is against unions. Uh, The right likes to claim, gee, they just don't want to join unions, the workers. The polls show the opposite. They just have to go through hell to potentially get a union. They still might not win. Look what happened to the Amazon workers. Clearly, they want one and would benefit from one. And so we have this structural situation. I think it's highly promising because Corporate America always can make things more efficient and take more of the profit. and Wall Street, of course, incentivizes that and gives them, the CEOs, great benefit for doing so, including making more and more money. I mean, there's no limit, apparently. Uh, Workers are standing up, and I think it's the beginning, hopefully, of a new era where we're going to get structural labor law reform, the PRO Act, for example. And parts of the PRO Act are in Build Back Better. One of the least understood things is that their are actual real fines and build back letter for violating labor laws. Corporations, when there's an organizing drive, make that a, a, a cost of doing business and fire people and pay, pay back the wages if they're held guilty uh, years later. They just, they just chalk it up as a business expense. And so this is like a huge transformative thing. You look at people like the Nabisco workers, right? They really stood up. And they backed down Nabisco and got, got the contract they wanted, and didn't have any major concessions. Now, that's great, but we also need the structural reform because of the global trade system we created. There were 5,000 Nabisco workers that were part of the Bakers and Confectioners Union. Now there are 1,500. So they already saw the right on the wall. They've tried to organize and get rid of the company union, the Mexican plant that's being outsourced to. So they've done everything, these workers, and they're the vanguard. And so I see all of this and and all the Amazon organizing as hopefully the beginning of actually taking back the country, but it'll also require the government to make it possible for most workers to organize again if they should want a union, which is most of them. So, Stephanie, would anything I said wrong there? I know I made more of a statement or that you would want to elaborate on if I didn't.
3: (laughs) As always, Robert, you hit all the right points and And wrapped it up in uh, historical context, which is always uh, really very interesting. And, uh, you know, I just want, you know, if we want to have have a decent uh, life for working people, we need to have strong unions, period, the end. And we can't get there, though, without that structural reform that you mentioned in the PRO Act, which several of those items are in the reconciliation bill. It's not something that you're going to see on CNN or MSNBC necessarily, uh, but it, these these are important measures that are in there that I just heard this morning that the Democratic leadership is holding tight on those. So, I would like your listeners to keep uh, keep an eye on on those provisions that uh, you know make it easier, make it more fair for workers to organize. Right now, uh, it's much easier for an employer to you know hire a a, a high priced union buster and uh, the the organizing uh, uh, stops. And when that organizing campaign is disrupted and stopped, that means not only those workers lose, but all workers lose. Because we know that when there's a higher union density, when unions have more power in the workplace, even non-union workers are better off. Um, And uh, you mentioned around uh, these strikes that we've seen. Now we know in terms of the numbers in 2019, the actual number of, of people that were on strike was mm, a little bit higher even in 2019 than today, but it's a, it's a different mood today as well, because not only are we seeing the strikes happening uh, you know, at John Deere, at Kellogg's, um, uh, teachers in Scranton, we are also seeing the community coming together around those striking workers in a very significant way. I was in uh, Dubuque, Iowa, last week, and, sh- and saw the amount of support that those John Deere workers are getting from their community, and it is absolutely uh, outstanding. So, you know, for for your listeners, in terms of what can what can people do um, to be out there and supportive uh, when some, when when anyone in our community does go on strike, or when labor uh, when when people are needing a helping hand. And I'll just mention right away um, the, the workers with the machinists are at the Milwaukee Art Museum. And right now they could use uh, your help. If you go to the art museum, uh, tell them you support the workers there to get their first
1: contract. Claire. Thanks. That's actually a perfect segue into what I was going to ask you about, which is that we talked about the PRO Act and Build Back Better at the national level, but can you talk a little bit about how this movement is playing out here on the ground in Wisconsin, whether through actual labor organizing or even maybe just the mood amongst your members? Well,
3: um, in terms of, um, you know, there's a lot of uh, different unions that are in contract negotiation right now. And, uh, you know, certainly there's there's a different sort of leverage um, that 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 they're seeing. So, um, but it's 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 never easy to pry away more money from the bosses. But uh, in terms of organizing, you know, you've talked about I'm sure on the podcast before about the Collectivo workers. They're still uh, you know involved in negotiating that first contract. So they definitely can use your help every time you go to Collectivo to order that coffee uh, Union Strong or IBW Strong. Um, and then, like I mentioned with the art museum and uh, we've had other uh, organizing, uh, the Alpine Valley workers, which hopefully they'll be back open next year uh, with Iatsi. But, um, you know, there's, there's other organizing campaigns in the works that aren't necessarily public right now, but uh, we are seeing that that more and more workers, particularly younger workers, are open to the idea of gaining some power in the workplace by coming together with their coworkers and joining a union.
0: Hey, speaking of that, Stephanie, if we have somebody listening who feels that way and has been wanting to organize in their workplace, what would you recommend for them to do if they're interested in wanting to organize?
3: Well, the the first thing that they ought to do is uh, you know, start talking with their coworkers and finding out what the what the issues are and what their willingness uh uh to to engage in that. And certainly uh they could uh if you're looking for like a, a, a place to to go, they could certainly call us and we could uh, figure out how to point them in the right direction in terms of uh, different unions that would be the best to help them out with their organizing.
0: You heard it there, folks. You just got the tip start talking with your coworkers. It's absolutely critical. You can't form a union without having tight, smart, strong relationships with coworkers. But, folks, organize uh, and reach out to the AFL CIO if you're thinking about it. Stephanie, thank you so much for taking the time to join us. Thank you for your leadership. Uh, in the labor movement. We really appreciate you taking the time to uh, join the podcast today.
3: Thank you very
0: much. Folks, with that, though, we got to wrap this up. We're already running a little late. Uh, Of course, want to thank Stephanie Bloomingdale, president of the Wisconsin State AFL-CIO, for joining us. And want to thank our producer, Brian Woolbridge, who makes it happen every week. We got to roll. See you later. You're listening to the Battleground Wisconsin.